You're listening to the Candid Confidence Podcast. I'm your host, Leah Pardee. I'm a spiritual life and business mentor, helping you create a life of freedom and purpose. On this podcast, we chat all things mindset, spirituality, and entrepreneurship. My job is to teach you how to believe in yourself, connect to yourself spiritually, and go after your big dreams. Girl, let's do the damn thing. This episode is sponsored by Premium Jane. Premium Jane is a CBD brand that I love because it's organic, made in the USA, and totally safe because it's made from plants. You know I'm all about holistic health and solving problems without adding chemicals and side effects to our bodies. But for those of you who aren't sure what CBD and all the hype around it is about, CBD is the second most prevalent active compound found in cannabis. This gives you some of the medical benefits of marijuana without the high. There are tons of studies that credit CBD with alleviating lots of problems, ranging from depression and sleep to even cancer. I love using Premium Jeans Strawberry Gummies for my own anxiety when I get caught up. The flavor is natural, and I only use one or two gummies at a time. I've also used CBD for physical pain. Another cool thing is that these gummies are even vegan. Other awesome products by Premium Jane include oils, topical creams, and even CBD bath bombs for your next self-care night. Okay, so if you've heard all the hype and are so ready to give CBD a try, I have a special promo code just for you for 20% off your next purchase of Premium Jane CBD. Just head to premiumjane.com or go to the link in my show notes and use code CONFIDENCE for 20% off your next purchase. Okay. Hey guys, welcome back to the Canon Confidence Podcast. You know, it's pretty rare we have a guest on these days, but that just makes me even more excited to bring you Julian Reeve. You guys are going to love him. I listened to his TED Talk recently and it was so good. I just knew he would hit home on the podcast. We're going to talk all about perfectionism. So Julian Reeve is a former music director of the Broadway musical Hamilton He's turned perfectionism contributor, speaker, and author of Captain Perfection and the Secret of Self-Compassion, a self-help book for the young perfectionist. So Julian, welcome to the show. I'm so excited for you to share your knowledge with us. Uh, Thanks for being here. Of course. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Absolutely. So I'd love if you could start off with your journey. How did you become the music director for Hamilton? Such a huge show and you know, how you kind of, um, what made you end up leaving that that realm of business to start giving TED Talks and writing self-help books? Would love to hear your journey. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, my wife and I moved to America in uh, early 2012, uh, and I'd been in music theatre for a very, very long time, working in the West End on a bunch of shows and nas- uh, international tours, national tours in the UK, around Europe. Um, so I was very experienced in in that realm. And so when we moved to New York, there was a kind of natural pro- progression to, to Broadway. Uh, it took a minute. Uh, it always does when you move somewhere new. Um, you know, it takes, takes a while to kind of get your feet under the table. Uh, but I was very fortunate to fall in with the... Um, uh, what would become the creative team for Hamilton uh, on the show Bring It On. Uh, Bring It On uh, was a movie to start with and then was a Broadway show and then I took out the uh, the national tour. So I met Alex uh, Lackamore who was the original music director for the show and did all the orchestrations 
um, and arrangements for the show. Um, and I met Lynn and uh, Andy Blankenbuehler, who was also the uh, director as well as the choreographer for Bring It On. Um, so took that around the States for a few months, went out to Japan with that. And then it was probably around a year later when uh, Alex mentioned that uh, they were working on this new show um, and they were all very excited by it. And um, I saw it for the first time uh, January 15th, 2015, uh, the public. So that would have been the off-Broadway production and was just blown away. I mean, I was in, the, was in the audience at the same time as Andrew Lloyd Webber, actually, and we were talking in the interval. And he, he said it was the, he, he mentioned that it might be the new Les Mis. And I said, well, I don't know. I think it might be the new Rent. Um, I think we were both right, actually, in, in hindsight. Uh, but anyway, um, so that was the, the first time I, I saw the show. And then Alex asked me to learn the show with a view to working on the Broadway production. So I worked on the Broadway production, putting in uh, some of the cast that took over from the originals. Um, and then several months after that, they were looking for a music director to take out the first national tour, which would begin the front of 2017 uh, in San Francisco. And so I jumped onto that and uh, stayed with the show for, um, yeah, about two and a half, yeah, two and a half years all in. Um, what got me to talking about TED Talks? Well, um, three three months into my uh, job with Hamilton in San Francisco, I had a uh, I had a heart attack, um, and I was forty three years old, and it kind of came out of the blue. And originally, the doctors were like, "Well, it has to be the stress of the job. I mean, this is Hamilton. This is big stuff. This is you know, high high profile, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Um, but kind of work with the psychologist would actually uncover perfectionism to be the underlying cause of the attack. Um, so, so began a new kind of um, relationship with the subject um, and it became something of a passion really uh, in terms of researching and trying to negotiate because of course, you know, I was in a very high profile job where perfection was the demand every night and, um, you know, I was in a, a position, a leadership position of authority where I had to get the best out of the cast every night. And so, you know, you can't just suddenly forget that you're a perfectionist or that you're working on the biggest musical on the planet. Uh, but you have to do that in healthy ways. Um, and so kind of began my journey with how to do that. Um, and that all culminated in 2019 in doing a, a TED talk on the on the subject, reframing perfectionism, uh, the vital need for change. Wow, so interesting. So, whenever before you experienced the heart attack, did you did you, would you ever have called yourself a perfectionist? And, and if so, did you think of it as a bad thing? Yeah, great question. Um, I think I was. I was actually very similar to most perfectionists in the fact that I suspected that I was, um, but I had no kind of real clarity or proof surrounding the, the subject. And the reason for that is quite simple, really. I, I was born in 1974 and any, anyone around my age um, will have grown up with perfectionism not being a thing. Uh, the reason why is that perfectionism wasn't really uncovered in any detail and researched thoroughly until the early 1990s. So we all grew up in, in family environments where our, our parents might well have been perfectionists and didn't know about it. 
Uh, we might have grown up learning that behavior. Some of it might have been genetic because the, the two are, um, the, those are the, the two ways that, that kids can become perfectionistic, learn behavior and also genetic. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, I was like, wow, perfectionism can do this. It's, and, and of course, it was all traced back to my maladaptive perfectionism and how that made me feel. So I struggled in my 20s throughout my 30s with incredible, incredibly low self-esteem. The inner critic in my head was omnipresent and very, very loud. Um, and I didn't treat my body very well um, with regard to things like alcohol, drugs, etc. Um, because I, 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 I actually used those things to kind of help me feel better about myself. But of course, what, what I was doing all the time was uh, causing, you know, real damage to, to my body physically. I just didn't know it yet. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so looking back, I mean, because you wrote this book for children, right? This is the yeah. book is geared towards kids because you, I it seems like you have a belief that we need to start with kids. Like they need to learn that they don't have to be perfect 100% of the time and, and all of that. Did right. you, growing up, you you were involved with theater and things like that. Did you um, feel like you were perfectionist back then or do you know like when it started? Um, I, I think my earliest memory of my, my own perfectionism, uh, and I, I, as I say, I didn't really label it at the time, this is looking back, was when I was nine years old. I was in a, a choir, Jesus College Cambridge Choir, which is a part of Cambridge University. I was the deputy head chorister and we were recording an album and I had a solo on the album. And the solo comes like halfway through this, this four and a half minute piece. And so I sang the solo, we finished the piece and no sooner had the red light for, for recording gone off to indicate that we would stop recording, my hand shot up. And the music director looked at me and, and you know, asked me what, what the problem was. And I said, can, can we do it again? Because my immediate feeling was, I can do better than this. The third time I did that, the music director came over to me and gently um, smiled at me and just said, look, Julian, we're going to have to move on. We're short on time. It sounds great. It's good enough. And that, that was my first kind of real connection with, with that, which, you know, I, I don't blame the music director for doing that there's every chance that I would still be in that chapel at the age of 47 or whatever I am now, um, you know, going over the same solo thinking that I could do it better because that's what perfectionists do. Right. Yep. Wow. Yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes people say things like that and, and you have no idea the impact, something that you can say, you know, it's, it's hard to always say the right things all the time. Sure. Um, so, okay, so I, you know, was a perfectionist as well, something I'm definitely still working towards, but sometimes when I'm talking about this, uh, people say, well, do you still have goals? What about your goals and your expectations? And because I was like a super high achiever and like had all these crazy ambitions, where do you feel like is the balance? Like we obviously still want to have goals and do big things. Where do we balance that with uh, not getting too obsessive with it? Right. I mean, so the thing that I always encourage people to appreciate is that perfectionism is multidimensional. So it's not a one dimensional thing um, and broken down into its kind of simplistic form. There's adaptive perfectionism, which is all the good stuff and maladaptive perfectionism, which is all the bad stuff. So all the good stuff like, you know, high motivation, 
great conscientiousness, fantastic attention to detail, always wanting to be your best, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's the adaptive. Um, the other side, the side that really holds us back through low self-esteem, procrastination, things never being good enough, um, inner critic, et cetera, is, is all the maladaptive side. In answer to the question of where we find the balance, it's a very personal choice. Um, and for those kind of just starting to, to uh, unpack their perfectionism, kind of what I ask them to do or get them to do first, first out is simply to start with a pros and cons list. So how does your perfectionism help you? How does it hinder you? Um, and kind of the bottom line with, with the way that I work with, with perfectionists um, is that it's all about education, is that you can't, you know, I, 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 I strongly believe that perfectionists are outstanding, exceptional people. Um, we go the extra mile and that extra mile is absolutely necessary. I mean, Steve Jobs was a huge perfectionist and look at what he's done for, you know, we might not be having this conversation where it not, not for people like Steve Jobs. So we need perfectionists, but we need them to be healthy and we need them to work in an environment that's healthy for them, but also the people that they're working for. Um, and how we try and achieve that is understand what your adaptive perfectionism does for you, but also figure out what your maladaptive side does against you and figure out management techniques that helps your adaptive side to thrive because you're managing your maladaptive side in healthier ways. Hmm. And do you feel like people typically experience perfectionism in one area of life, like with, you know, their physical appearance or with their career? Or do you feel like for a perfectionist, it can, it can seep into like all different areas of their life? Yeah. Um, so it's my experience that perfectionism is a hugely personal subject. Um, in answer to this, in answer to the question, there's, there's, I, I think I'm right in saying that there's normally kind of one big area where people show a lot of perfectionism and then there's a lot of sub areas, but mm -hmm. a lot of it depends on the type of perfectionist that we are. So um, the psychologists Hewitt and Flett um, say that there are three types of perfectionism, self-orientated perfectionism, um, which is experienced by those that set and seek unrealistically high standards for themselves then you've got other orientated perfectionists who set unrealistic standards for others. And then you've got socially prescribed perfectionists who believe that other people expect them to be perfect. So when you take those three kind of categories and you put it into your own life and you consider, okay, well, what am I perfectionist about? You'll realize that you probably display traits across all three of those categories. So you're not cleanly fitting into one specific model. Um, and I, I, I think that's a, that's, that's a big thing for, for perfectionists to, to realize is that, you know, there's an obvious category, like for me, it was performing music, but I am hugely perfectionistic in other ways outside of that. It, they just don't show themselves as strongly as, as, the, as the major component. Mm, it's so interesting because I, you know how we kind of assume other people like the same things as us and oh my gosh I can't believe you don't like you know that food I love it it's kind of I feel like that with perfectionism like it's hard for me to imagine that there are people who don't hold themselves to crazy standards and like stress out about things you know not everything being perfect I, 
I hope I can someday experience being like that free spirited um, type of individual. In your own experience, you know, you obviously worked with a psychologist. Um, what other things have you have you been doing to to gain that healthy balance with your new career, but not getting too um, too obsessive and, and uh, perfectionist with it? Sure. Well, you know, I, I think it's uh, it's important to recognize that I'm, you know, like everybody, this is a, a continuous journey. Um, sometimes the balance gets funky. I mean, if we were having this conversation four days ago, uh, I was in a very different place because my perfectionism was speaking very loudly because of the deadlines I'm under and the pressure I'm under, etc. Um, I think a lot of it just comes down to awareness. So when I, when I first started digging into perfectionism, um, Brené Brown's book, The Gifts of Imperfection, was a huge help to me because it just kind of opened the doors into thinking about perfectionism in a slightly different way. And this is very much the core of my work with the subject is that, you know, I really do want perfectionists to, I, I hate the, the phrase, I'm, I'm a recovering perfectionist or I've le I'm learning to overcome my perfectionism. Why? Because we've already talked about the adaptive side and the maladaptive side. And I strongly believe that, you know, if we take too much of perfectionism away from perfectionists, provided it's healthy, it's the healthy stuff, then actually we're setting them up to fail. They're not going to realize their potential. So the key is simple, it's education. You have to figure out, this is why the pros and cons list is a great place to start. How does it work for you? How does it trigger itself? What kind of behaviors do, do you show? Um, is it good or is it bad? And what, once you're into that minutiae, then you can start getting into the management of it. And the management of it for me, um, the successful management of it really centers around something called self-compassion. Um, so Kristin Neff, who's a leading psychologist on the subject, says self-compassion is a practice in which we learn to be a good friend to ourselves when we need it the most. Um, and it sounds like one of these kind of really simple things that, you know, we, we should just be able to go, oh, yeah, self-compassion, be kind to myself. All right. Yeah, that sounds cool. I'll, I'll give that a go. But perfectionists find that really, really difficult. Um, and so jumping into it slightly deeper, we learn with self-compassion, it's made up of three components. Self-kindness, where we learn to be warm and understanding to ourselves. Mindfulness, where we discover how to observe thoughts and feelings as they arise, but not necessarily to suppress, deny or react to them. And then there's the common humanity element, where we recognize that suffering and imperfection is, is all part of the human experience and so what we're experiencing isn't just unique to us it's it's much much uh, bigger and part of a, a, a global picture um, and once we start to implement those three uh, those three things through certain exercises we can really start to um, manage our perfectionism in in ways that just empower us to uh, manage it in healthy ways, which then means that we can go on to getting the most out of our adaptive side whilst managing the maladaptive. Interesting. I haven't heard that perspective before about 
like typically I hear people refer to it like they want to recover, recovering perfectionist or um, so to not use the word I am a perfectionist and, and continue it. But you make a really good point that there are definitely good things about it and it doesn't have to be something that we, we look to get rid of. Yeah, I mean, there's there's kind of another layer uh, for the reason for my argument. And and that is that, you know, if, if you asked uh, 10, if, if you got 10 adult perfectionists, um, to raise their hand if they were proud to be a perfectionist, I would put money on at least eight putting their hand up because of what you've just said. I understand that there's benefits to, to being so. So as a result, um, perfectionists are wary and um, quite dismissive of uh, pretty much doing anything that affects their perfectionism through their eyes. Now, the important thing to remember here is that perfectionists operate with a fixed mindset. Perfectionism leaves us in a fixed mindset state because it needs to operate within very rigid boundaries. It needs to be in control, it needs to know what's happening. It doesn't want any surprises, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so the, the, the reason why I encourage people to think about perfectionism in the way that I do is that it's almost a marketing tool. It's how do I get to these people? How do I inspire people to want to get to their perfectionism early to prevent what happened to, to me? So to prevent the heart attack in their 40s. Um, and that's kind of the only way to do it because, you know, they're not, they're not, their fixed mindset denotes that they want to stay in their comfortable space, um, even though it causes them a lot of pain. Um, and so finding the right message to actually get through to, to, to that audience was, uh, yeah, to, took a minute. That is so interesting. And, and you're absolutely right. Cause thinking back, you know, when I was, I was in a st very stressful, like corporate sales position with like all the quota and all, all of the pressure and everything like that. And I would, would have proudly raised my hand as a perfectionist because I, it was part of why I was successful in that field. So that makes a ton of sense. Um, something that you said jumped out at me too, one of your um, techniques and mindfulness. So what are some of your own practices that you do for that? Yeah, I mean, mindfulness for me kind of starts really at the, the, the start of the day. Um, you know, I, I try and get into yoga and breath work. It, it was fascinating. You know, my, my early um, jump into breath work I actually discovered that I was uh, my my breath my breath technique was actually inward, as in it was inverted. So rather than rather than my diaphragm going outwards when I breathed in, and inwards when I breathed out, it was the other way around. It was inverted. So I had to basically learn how to breathe properly. Um, and when you realise that the breath is so much, I mean, the breath is basically the oil and the gas that you put in your car, right? And without good gas and without the good good oil, there's no way that car's going anywhere healthily, um, no matter what speed you drive it. Um, so breath work is a, is a huge part of it. Um, the, the mindfulness stuff that, that, that I do with kids um, is super important because it, it helps them um, you know, we, we work in other, uh, in other parts of the book to actually establish, um, you know, how you can recognize when you're in a perfectionistic state. Um, but the key is to get out of it. 
um, because perfectionists, I mean, let's say, for example, that a, that a kid's made a, made a mistake in, a, in an art project, for example. And, you know, it's, it's the end of the world. It's like, you know, this, this is terrible and, you know, tantrums and all sorts of chaos is ensuing. Um, the, the child at that moment is either working in the past or the future. It's, there's fear surrounding what's, what's happening. And mindfulness is really powerful for bringing us all back to the present. So all I do with kids is I go, okay, great. Let's, let's start the breathing. So we calm them down that way. But then we simply just do a visualization technique where they have to, they have to look straight ahead and they have to either um, in their own head or out loud um, describe the things that are in the room. So I might say, okay, well, I've got some camera lighting and it's black and it's on stands and there are a few wires coming out. You have to be very descriptive with all this stuff. Um, and of course, the longer that goes on, combined with the breathing, the, the more you are centered. And so therefore, the more you are present and therefore, the further away you are from any fear that may be from the past or the future. And so your, your problem's kind of solved. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's one example of, of how mindfulness, um, mindfulness can be really powerful with perfectionism. I love that. And I, I love the idea of, of working with kids on that. That's so huge. So when you say breath work, um, are, are you talking like holotropic breathing or kind of just more like a meditative style? What does that look like for you in your morning routine? Yeah, I mean, just just for me, more than meditative stuff. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, it's, it's as much for, um, I, I've recognized that mantras are really good for me combined with, combined with, with breath work. Um, because, you know, most perfectionists, most perfectionists will, will wake up and there's already something wrong with them. Either they woke up too late or they woke up too early or they woke up not awake enough or some, somehow they're beating themselves up for doing something wrong. And so the part of the, the, the technique that I use with myself is simply just to reset, to get rid of all those, all those horrible voices that we all have, um, just to kind of, you know, clean slate, and then I can get to work and actually be the guy who I am rather than the guy that I'm reacting to. Wow, that really, <laughs> that really hits home because I'm the person who like, I get exactly eight hours of sleep a night and like, mm -hmm it has to be exact and whether that's good or bad, I think like letting go of any thoughts of, you know, that wasn't the exact right amount of sleep. Right. Yeah, I could definitely feel that. Well, it's, it's uh, you know, the two, two words that are very close to my heart and certainly in the work that I do is forgiveness and permission. Brené Brown in her latest book um, tells a wonderful story about permission uh, and she actually writes herself permission slips so I give, I give you permission. So th there's, there's a great story where she was on Oprah for the first time and she was in New York ready for the show with her manager and they went out to dinner. Manager's like, you're not right. You're, you're funky. You're like, you know, you're stressed and this, that and the other. And Brennan's, no, no, I'm fine. Woke up the following morning, was exactly the same. And then just before she was just about to get in the cab to go to the studio, she uh, gets a call from her daughter's school and she's forgotten to write a permission slip for her daughter to go on a school trip. 
So Brenna goes, well, of course, I, I give you I give you permission for my daughter to go on this trip. You know, this, this is crazy. I've got TV with Oprah to do. And then she realised on the way to the studio that actually that permission for her daughter was exactly what she needed to give to herself. So she gave herself permission to be free and funny and not have all the answers and not be perfect in the interview. And the interview with Oprah went so well that at the end of the first hour, Oprah walked her off stage and said, I want to do another hour. We're going to keep the audience in the in their seats. Uh, and Brené was like, well, I've got nothing to wear. Um, and Oprah was like, well, you know, I'll lend you something. We'll figure it out. So, you know, just just the the, the power there of of giving ourselves permission not to be not to be perfect. And I did that before before this interview. It's like, you know, you don't have to have all the answers because actually I don't have all the answers. Nobody does. And that's fine. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's so good. Um, I love Brene Brown as well. Yeah, definitely good advice there. I, I love the idea of like actually writing yourself a permission slip. Um, I think that really goes along with what you said about self-compassion, like being that friend to yourself or, or almost like if, if you were the parent, what would you do? You know, you would, you'd probably tell yourself it's okay. You know, you, you did great, like stop being so hard on yourself. So right. that's awesome. Okay. So knowing what you know now, and obviously, you know, having um, had, had a heart attack, which obviously was very traumatic and, and changed probably a lot of things in, in your life. Would you go back in time and, and like go into Broadway and, and be in that competitive and, and pressure filled industry? Or do you feel like you would gravitate towards something not so intense? Mm, great question. Um, I've never really thought about that. The, the, the bit that I have thought about is when you realize that you haven't dealt with perfectionism in your life, and you have a, a big incident like a heart attack. Um, what it actually did for me, it was it was kind of it came on quite suddenly, and it was a little bit of a shock. But there was quite a lot of regret, and the regret was really driven by, uh, and again, plays is one of the layers in my messaging in terms of why I feel about perfectionism the way that I do is, you know, I've done pretty well, I guess, you know, I mean, to, to get to the stage of, of, you know, what I've achieved and I've traveled the world and I've, I've been an entrepreneur and had businesses and done a lot in education. I mean, it's, it's a nice, it's a nice career, but imagine what I could have done. Imagine what I could have achieved had I addressed my perfectionism earlier um, and therefore addressed the self doubt and the bullying in a critic and, crippling low self-esteem, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the sky might have been the limit. Um, so that's that's that was quite an interesting journey for me. Do I think I would have gone to, to on to Broadway? It's difficult, isn't it? Because, you know, perfectionists are known to gravitate towards industries that demand that level of detail. You know, we all gravitate to environments that are that are stressful, that are kind of, you know, results orientated. Um, I can't ever imagine being in a world that isn't results orientated because that was the environment that I grew up in. That was my family dynamic. My parents were both very, very successful musicians and it was play the right notes. You, you know, everyone's happy. Um, and I can't ever imagine, you know, not not existing in that type of world. Um, but I suppose it might be fun to find out. 
like maybe well, I don't know maybe, maybe for a day maybe maybe we can do like a, a job swap for a day and I can and a personality swap and I can figure it out yeah yeah it is it is definitely a hard thing to to think about so do you think that with the right tools and resources and, and doing the mindfulness and doing those exercises someone could have like a super high pressure job and not and like and be a perfectionist but not let it you know ruin their health and and all of that yes um put simply absolutely um you know the the reason why i wrote captain perfection and the secret of self-compassion um is you know it's ostensibly the book that i wanted to read or could have read um when when i was a kid or should have read i, sh I should say um but the the lovely reaction to the book has been, you know, this is as useful for adults as it is for kids because the techniques are completely transferable. Um, and it's it's interesting in my work, you know, even with businesses, uh, in terms of you know creating a, a culture that is uh, healthy uh, for perfectionists so that they can thrive. Um, you know, we the 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 whole self compassion element is huge in in terms of you know, creating enough space for a perfectionist to be able to recognize when they're not performing well, to reset, to then go again with a slightly different mindset that actually makes them more productive. Yeah, I, I do think that the corporate culture has a lot to do with it, um, for sure. I think that there's a lot of companies that are structured where it would be very, you know, dangerous for a perfectionist in terms of what's expected and, and, Right. Um, other companies could perform, have the same role and, and be just as well performing as a company and have employees where breaks are encouraged and vacations are encouraged and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating world and dependent on what industry you're talking about will depend on the level of, uh, you know, kind of detail that they're putting into the cultures of, of, of their, their business and, and their employees, you know, I mean, there's, there's kind of there's a huge myth surrounding things like self-compassion that you know it kind of makes you weak or lazy in some way mm -hmm. um but actually the science behind it says it, it actually makes us more productive so it, and I, I pinpoint this in the ted talk when we're compassionate the parasympathetic nervous system which is the part that calms us down switches on which leads to higher creativity um more blood flows to the prefrontal cortex, the part of our brain that does most of our thinking. And a hormone called oxytocin can flow more freely, which actually helps us maintain lower levels of stress. So it, it's, uh, it's all really, it's a powerful tool that can really kind of set us up to achieve even more. Um, if, and, and if it didn't have the kind of almost stigma attached to it, uh, in the business world, then uh, it it it'll be, yeah, it's it's gonna make a it's gonna make eventually uh, a a big difference, but it's gonna take some time. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's it's on its way. You know, new age companies like Uber and Google right. actually have you know, I don't know if this is true, but like meditation break rooms and nap, right. nap time and and yep. snacks like you know. Yep. Uh, I think that those type of company cultures are promoting things like this, but for, for sure, I mean, the company that I was was at would have laughed at self-compassion and said, yes, of course. Sales? No. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, it, you know, that's, that's when we're into the dynamic of, of proof, 
you know and and you know this is this is where we're not there yet we you know we need another 10 years where so you know big hr departments with all these big kind of you know fancy bits of software that can actually tell you how productive you've been in in the one minute between then and now um where they, they need to do their work and they need to implement this this type of stuff to actually get the proof so that the big bosses uh who haven't embraced um you know any any form of real cultural change um embracing self-care and um you know wellness in the workplace uh, can actually get some get some data that says well actually yeah if i do this then you know I, I might actually end up more productive and therefore more profitable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that I think that it is trending in that direction. Certainly, the the modern management leadership books that have been written in the past twenty years, and they're getting away from that fear based system, right? Because right. it doesn't. It's not as effective as positive reinforcement. So absolutely trending that way. Mm-hmm. Okay, I have one last question for you. I know you mentioned Brene Brown, um, but what's like your favorite book in personal development or one that has just helped you along with your journey? Oh, uh, I would have to go for Start With Why by Simon Sinek. Um, Simon was amazing uh, at the discovery of people don't buy what we do, people buy why we do it. Uh, and that just kind of blew me away and it kind of leads into authenticity and, um, you know, staying true to who you really are to create uh, the things that you really want to create. Um, and actually, it was, it was partly timing that, that uh, really connected me with, with Simon's work because I was building a, a new business at the time. And I actually built the business on the premise of the book. Um, and it's still very successful today. I'm no longer involved. I, I sold my uh, my partnership, but um, yeah, it, it's uh, Simon. Simon's got a, a great knack for understanding nuance of people and how to implement that in business and, and elsewhere. So, yeah, that's that's a real favorite. Awesome. Okay, and then you obviously have a book. So tell us where we can find your book, where we can follow you on social media, how we can stay involved with you and, and follow you. Yeah, great. Well, the website is Julie, uh, Julian Reeve, J U L I A N Reeve R E E V E dot com. Um, the book is available right now on Amazon. Uh, it'll be available in uh, other outlets uh, start of March. Um, and the title again is uh, Captain Perfection and the Secret of Self-Compassion, a self-help book for young perfectionists. Um, I, I would say that it's probably six plus, um, but if you've got a 13 year old, don't be don't be you know, too worried about uh, about the six element. It's it's written in a way that, that can connect across age groups. Uh, social media, um, Julian Reeve on Instagram, uh, Julian Reeve on Facebook um yeah that that might cover it awesome i will link all of that in the show notes guys you can go check him out follow him buy his book julian thank you so much for coming on the show this has been so helpful i'm definitely going to do the pros and cons list i think everyone should do that exercise if they resonated with anything in this episode so thank you so much my pleasure thank you so much for having me